Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. Welcome back, my friends, after a relatively short break, and I've got another cracking interview for you. You may remember that a few months back now, I interviewed Bob Burnham. Bob is a hugely respected authority when it comes to the British Army during the Peninsula War. And back along, he was joining me to talk about the Light Division, Wellington's famed fighting force. But today we're going to focus on something a little bit different, something that has been neglected, not just on the Napoleonicist, but on the historiography more generally, because we're going to look at the Portuguese army, which is a really interesting topic, something that has been hugely and horrifically neglected, and it's always kind of rankled with me, so I'm really excited to be doing this one. Bob, welcome back to the Napoleonicist. Good to see you. Are you well? Yeah, actually, I'm doing quite well. It's, uh, I've avoided COVID so far. Uh, and plan to do so. My only complaint, and people will laugh about this because I live in Hawaii, it's quite cold here right now. The other day it was down to 14 Celsius. Today it was a balmy 16 Celsius. And you, I can see you laughing and I, other, I can almost hear the eyes rolling, but when you don't have a heater in your house or no furnace, 16 can be quite cold. And at night, I generally sleep with three blankets on. So, yes, I'm a wimp. But yeah, otherwise, <laughs> I'm doing quite well. I hope uh, everything's going well with you and your wife. And you're both staying healthy. Yeah, I'm, I'm the, my wife is, is news to me. Uh, my other half will be... Uh, oh, your other half? That. I thought she... <laughs> okay, I was listening to the movie broadcast. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yes, uh, not my my wife, but my other half, um, or certainly not my wife yet. Um, we'll see how that one develops. But thank you. Yes, all well here. Um, you're quite right. I was uh, chuckling when you you said uh, 14 degrees because um, we're sort of floating around about eight at the moment. So um, there's a way to go here. Yeah, and I think my heating is set to something like 18 degrees C or 19 degrees C on a cold day so um <laughs> well, but I, I do will... take your point that uh, if you haven't got a heater because you know you're used to a, a warm climate then it, it must be quite a different prospect and uh, well i live on about uh, 300 meters high in elevation and on the side of a uh, 3000 meter high 
mountain. And this time last year, there was snow on top of that mountain. So it does get cold here. I, I can well believe we, that. Yeah. But that's the cross I have to bear. So Indeed. Indeed. I'm sure the views make up for it. Uh, I'm sure it's worth yes. it in the long run. Um, let's let's dive into this. Um, this book, why? And that seems like a really acerbic question, but and I know why this needs to be done, but explain to our listeners, you know, why is this book important? Because it absolutely is important. And what was it that made you kind of go down this, it's not even a rabbit hole, it's this yawning kind of chasm of a topic. Uh, what made you want to dabble with it? Well, first, uh, uh, let me put in a plug for the book. Uh, the name of the book is in uh, The Words of Wellington's Fighting Cocks, The After Action Reports of the Portuguese Army During the Peninsular War, 1812-1814. And it's published by Penn and Soy. I hit the streets in uh, Great Britain late November of last year. And for those in the rest of the world, I have copies and I know uh, people it's available on Amazon in the United States. So it should be on the streets uh, throughout there. And I'm going to say straight away, folks, don't do the simple thing and go to Amazon because Jeff Bezos turns the profits into rocket fuel. Hey, if you want to support Bob and make sure that he gets some of the royalties, go and get it direct from pen and sword. Okay. In fact, look, Napoleonicists, you've got, you've got a discount code. So Napoleonicists patrons, you get a 10% discount code. Um, so, you know, go use that. So even more reason to go to pen and sword, not only to support Bob, but also because, you know, actually you'll find it for much the same price anyway, when you factor in the discount. So look, pen and sword, that's the place to go buy it, not Amazon. And I just hope that Jeff Bezos's lawyers don't come kind of baying, baying for my blood, but you know, we'll move on. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, uh, Jeff moved to Maui, uh, a couple of months ago and built a 50 million pound house. And he donated uh, several million pounds to the local emergency room in case I guess he gets sick. And we now get a, a daily Amazon flight onto the island. So, yeah, I agree with you about buying from Ben and Soy. So, you got to uh, keep my bread and butter through them or through the Napoleonicists. Uh, back to your original question is uh, as most of your listeners know, I was deeply involved with the Napoleon series for many years. And over the years, I would get uh, people coming to me saying, hey, I've got this great book idea, or I want to write an article on this or that. And uh, generally, I'll help them uh, formulate where I think the book should go or the article should go. But uh, about three years ago, Moises Gordencio, who was the co-author of my book, and it was from Portugal, and this is key, he's fluent in Portuguese, obviously. He contacted me about some um, material we found in the Portuguese military archives. And this was a series of reports written by Portuguese commanders during the Peninsular War about what their units did during the different battles. This immediately piqued my interest uh, because Portuguese primary source material is very rare. Matter of fact, I have none other than what was written by British officers who were uh, attached to the Portuguese army. Uh, so I asked him if he could send me a, a copy of one of the reports. And the report was amazing and contained uh, information I'd never seen before. My next thought was, okay, how many more did he have? And I asked him, it turns out he did more, or less, more than I could have hoped for. 
We had 273 reports. That's was quite totally, impressive. Yeah, I was totally floored. Of which 158 were after action reports and 115 were casualty returns. At, the, at this point, I asked Moises if he was interested in writing a book and thus the idea for, in the words of Wellington's Fight and Cox was born. Fortunately, Rupert Harding of Pen and Sword Books saw the value of the book and it was published in late November last year, as I mentioned. And I'd like to point out our book is the first time that any of these reports have been published except for one of them, which I found in Wellington's dispatches. I mean, firstly, that's all the incentive you could possibly need to go and buy this book. That in itself makes it something that if you're serious about understanding the, the context of the Peninsula War, and you know this, the nature of this whole other force that is integral to Wellington's success and makes up a huge proportion of the army that he's using to fight across Spain and Portugal for much of the conflict, you need to go buy this book. I'm also really glad that you did a shout out for Rupert Harding there because he is a, a lovely individual. Um, I've met him a couple of times, really nice guy. And I'm glad that he was supportive of this because this is a hugely important thing. And um, I'm gonna ask a self-indulgent question, if I may, is there anything else in the archives that people can go plunder because we'd love to see more of this stuff come out into the mainstream. You know, is there like a book two and a book three that you've got in the pipeline that we can look forward to? Well, I should ask, um, I was talking to Moises yesterday about it and he is looking for the reports that were written prior to uh, 1812. He also recently wrote a major article for the Napoleon series based on some of the information he came across. And that was the use of the Baker rifles, rifles in the Portuguese army. And most sources say that the Portuguese Cacadores were not armed with rifles. And he's coming up with numbers that just bored me. Uh, for example, uh, the third Cacadores, which are in the light division, which is something I'm very interested in, by Busaco in 1810, they had 600 rifles assigned to the unit. Well, for 685 men in a, a Cacadoy's battalion, that means every soldier had one. Uh, and he breaks down in the article the, uh, what units had were completely rifled armed and or which ones had partial. Uh, and this is, totally goes against anything that's been uh, I've seen before. There is also what I call the Holy Grail uh, of information. You'll find the reports I have will be talking about are the ones that were meant for publication and meant for, uh, they're similar to uh, like well, one of Wellington's dispatches after the battle. However, when I say the Holy Grail, there is allegedly a cart in some place buried deep in the uh, archives that contain all the private correspondence between the British officers who were assigned uh, or attached to the Portuguese army in Marshal Beresford. Um, it could be a rumor. I'm hoping we'll be able to find it. I know Marcus Beresford uh, would be very interested in seeing the information because that's where they include the information that they didn't want made public. And it's, uh, I'm hoping it's gonna be uh, dug out and, 
I think it will change the way we perceive the Portuguese uh, immensely, and also the how the British officers were in, integrated into the Portuguese army, uh, which we'll cover later uh, or in some time in the future. Absolutely. I mean, that may end up being an entire episode in its own right, mightn't it? Because that is a huge topic. Um, we'll have to we'll have to see how things go on that. But that material could be explosive. It yeah. really could. Um, wow. I really hope that sees the light of day. I think a lot of historians would give not necessarily a right arm, but a, a couple of things off a hand to, you know, just to get a sense of what was really going on there. That sounds yes. incredible. Um I will keep you posted. That's all I can say. I haven't found it yet. Please do. Um, and I know that many of our listeners will be eagerly awaiting some kind of announcement on that in the future. Um, let's clear something up. You talked <coughs> about after action reports, and you also talked about how these are doctored in the sense that they are documents available for publication or they're, they're intended for publication, which makes them kind of official. So what are we actually dealing with when it comes to source material? What are these reports? What do they contain? What do they aim to do? Oh, okay, this is, they are official. This was the, the official report that the unit commander wrote. Whether they were intended for publication, I don't know. I, I said they were similar to dispatches, um, but usually uh, only the army commander uh, would send out the official dispatch about a battle. Uh, so whether they meant to go back to the government uh, at not or not, I don't know. However, in 1810, Marshal Beresford, who was a British officer who was serving as commander in chief of the Portuguese army, made every commander of a unit that was engaged in combat, uh, he had to write a report about what his unit did, which officers distinguished themselves in the unit casualties. Uh, this seems logical. You know, how is he supposed to find out what was going on? But in all my research, I've only found one after action report from the British Army uh, from 1793 up to 1815. And that was uh, one the, about the third division in. Uh, uh, at Waterloo. I did find one written by uh, Crawford after the combat at the River Coa, but that was more of a trying to justify his actions rather than what each unit did. So here we are, he's saying, you have to write these reports. And he didn't just tell it to the, the Portuguese division commander. He said every unit had the right one. For example, uh, if you were commanded a regiment, brigade, or division, plus the Kakadois battalions and artillery batteries. Additionally, any infantry battalion commander had to write one if he was operating independently away from his regiment. One copy was sent up through the chain of command to the army commander with each higher commander uh, using his subordinates report to write his own. For example, I'm commander of the 14th regiment. I send it up to my brigade commander he takes the information I sent, and then he will send it up to either uh, the Portuguese division commander or the commander of the Anglo-Portuguese uh, division, and who would then forward it up to Wellington. That was the first copy. This was meant to inform the battalion command or the overall commanders what the unit did. 
The second copy, though, was sent to the adjutant general of the Portuguese army, which meant, okay, this is what we did. Um, here's the guys who uh, did well and deserve recognition. And so it was kept within the Portuguese chain of command. So two copies were written. Uh, and unfortunately, or interestingly, they were not always identical. Uh, they were written, you know, okay, so guy writes uh, out uh, a 1,500, 2,000-word report. Then he has to write it again. Well, you know, he may or skip a few words uh, or there. But they were close enough. None of the major events uh, uh, were different. But there were some changes because we usually we only had a copy of the reports that were sent to that adjutant general. But occasionally we had found one that was written, went up to the chain of command to the army headquarters. So between the two of them, we get a pretty good idea of what the unit did. That's interesting. You've answered exactly the question that was on the tip of my tongue, which is which version did you guys manage to come across? And I guess that it would be the Adjutant General Department because of the, you know, the administration and the record keeping being that much tighter in such a department. And also once you send these reports up the chain of command, they just become bits of paper that get gathered together and then bundled off and then they lose their relevance. And so they, they get lost slash destroyed slash many things. Um, that's that's really yeah, interesting. Um, Garrett Glover uh, uh, edited the, the general Henry Cook uh, papers and he found a bunch of reports uh, like inspection reports and stuff like that that was sent to him when he was commanding the uh, British Army in the Netherlands in 1814. And yet they never made it to the National Archives. They were kept in his um, bundles, uh, his papers. Unfortunately, they were made because, uh, or he kept them because now they're available. But it's the same like this. And as you mentioned, if it went up to the um, Army level, what did the uh, staff officer do at the Quartermaster General's Department or the Adjutant General's Department? You know? Oh, gee, I've got another 500 pounds worth of paper, and they probably tossed it or burned it as kindling once it was no longer needed. So it was still thing it did go to that. It is. Um, and also, you've got the issue that, you know, people at various points make arbitrary decisions about what is or isn't of value and worth keeping. And, you know, there are all kinds of documents out there that have um, even, you know, documents that were sort of placed in storage that have either been damaged due to animals or, or mold or fire damage or have just been you know burnt to create shelving space and it's hugely frustrating to kind of ponder on some of the stuff that doesn't exist anymore because it's been destroyed because somebody's decided that it no longer has a value to historians and yet you know the likes of you and me could could spend hours going through this stuff you mentioned quantity here and that there were, I'm just thinking back to what you said, was it 158 after action reports, 115 casualty returns. So with that in mind, I'm guessing you haven't written up every single one because at 2000 words a, a copy, um, that would be quite a weighty tome. So how do you make the decision in terms of what you use and what you don't use? Uh, it was an easy decision. We used everything that Moises found. Uh, theoretically, there should have been a, um, since there was a requirement for submitting the reports, 
at the time the order was issued on 31 July 1810, there should have been hundreds and hundreds of these reports. However, we think the order was never uh, went into effect until June of 1812. And that's when we started seeing the large number of reports coming in. And this was, of course, at the start of the Salamanca campaign. Uh, Moises found no reports on, for example, with Siege of Badajoz or Cudad Rodrigo. He found none from Fuentes de Orno. Oh, that's a shame. Which, I've just pulled a massive wince for up because you know this is a radio show, so nobody can see my reactions. Yeah. But the the reaction to the lack of reports for Theodore Rodrigo and Badajoz, oh, yeah. that's a shame. You know, Pax Portuguese Brigade justify that. You know, that would have been it's, quite something. Uh, we don't know why. Um, we think they may not have been kept, or as we talked earlier, if they were lost, or there's buried someplace in the bowels of the archives and they uh, haven't surfaced yet. Uh, however, either of these happened, some of them should have survived. They should have surfaced. And uh, as of yesterday, Moises said he found one or two from 1811 and that was it. He found a few casualty reports for, fortunately for me, for the first and third Cacadores for 1811 during the fighting there. Of course, my next book's on the Light Division in uh, 1811, and so that's handy, but it's just not, you cannot find it. But considering maybe it'll dig some out soon. I mean, there's always the point that, you know, a lot of these catalogings are vast, and it's amazing how hard it can be sometimes to find things. And I've been working um, for a scholar recently, and we, we spent a good few weeks trying to sort of solve a problem of why we couldn't find a batch of correspondence that absolutely should have been in in a, an archival repository and in the end we found it uh, we just had to kind of play the system at its own game to to stumble across it um so it, it may because uh, you know you've got archivists who've got to work fast to try and produce these catalogs it may be that it's just been slightly incorrectly catalogued uh, i don't know what the system out is out uh, in Portugal or it may be that somebody's just kind of not quite got what they're dealing with and and you know or they've they've had to put it within a bunch of other papers there are all kinds of possibilities there I'm very struck by your years though 1812 there seems to be something in the water in 1811 and 1812 when it comes to administration in armies because there's a big shake-up to how the British army is run and there's just, and this is purely speculation, but there's just a little part of me that wonders whether this is part of that trend and you know, people generally getting their act together when it comes to these forces. And my thinking here is largely tied up, apologies for listeners who are bored of hearing me talk about court martials, but a lot changes in the court martial system in 1811 and particularly 1812, not least in terms of record keeping and regimental court martials being kept far, far more consistently from 1811 when there's an order that says they have to be included and then you see a trickle down effect from that which is that they really start to get included in significant numbers from 1812 onwards when you also have other changes to the system so i wonder if it's just slightly tied in with that that the british are starting to think slightly differently about the way in which they do record keeping for the army and so that has a knock-on effect for the Portuguese. And perhaps there's a conversation that's had at some point with Beresford 
about, you know, do the Portuguese kind of keep these things in, in, and make sure that they go to the right places in the way that they should? But that's speculation. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Well, I will address the British Army first. Uh, what I always amazes me is when I read the history of what's going on during the Napoleonic Wars, they, the British Army didn't really have a command structure that said, we have a, an expedition, we're going here. You know, General Smith, take your two divisions that's in your corps and go. Instead, they stood up at headquarters. Uh, they may take General Smith, and then he gets to choose who he wants for subordinate commanders. Um, uh, then they have to look for staff officers, and it, eventually it trickles down. Right? They get organized. Well, modern-day Army will say, okay, Third Corps, you go. Um, or in the U.S., Marine Expeditionary Force will go. And they have everything in place. Well, 1808 through 1811, I think they were just, you know, getting their act together, getting the headquarters formed, getting the relationships formed between the staff officers and what's supposed to be done. And I think it showed how well they did it in 1812, uh, unless you uh, take away the commissary on during the retreat back to Portuguese border in the fall. But, you know, they were, the institutional structure was in place. Uh, the Portuguese army basically had to be recreated from scratch in 1808 after it was disbanded by the French in 1807. And they were often considered not the most modern army at the time, but they, um, I think between the changes that were instituted by Beresford uh, by 1812, they uh, probably mirrored what the British army headquarters staff, what they were doing. Um, and was you know, fairly good, fairly competent. I don't think they were as good as the French staff ever was, but uh, I don't think the British were either, but that's another question um, or another topic altogether. But this allowed them to have this system in place for when the report started being written, they could, they knew what to do with them instead of them just tossing them aside. Uh, and it changes in 1814. But, we can talk about that later. Uh, well, I'll mention it is 1814, the Portuguese army or government said, hey, the French are out of Portugal. We don't really care what's going on in France. And they stopped supporting the, uh, the actual troops that were with Wellington to the extent that they've been doing before. And this and two areas, one was with money, and the other one was with uh, replacements. So the peak for the Portuguese army was probably 1813. They were trained, they had good commanders. 1814, they were, the commanders were still good, they were still trained, but the number of troops uh, they had dropped significantly. And also things that make the troops life or more effective uh, started to fall off. For example, replacements for uniforms, uh, uh, food, things like that. Uh, that's uh, an area that really needs to be looked at. Um, and most people don't realize that. I didn't realize it until Moises uh, uh, brought it up for the book. So uh, so we're seeing peaks and valleys. Uh, in 1814, you know, they did well, but 
That was despite the support they got from the government. See, one of the disadvantages of this being a radio show is that when guests make revelations like the one that you just heard, you don't get to see my reactions. And my gob just hit the floor before, you know, my general face turning into a particularly ugly look at just how deeply unpleasant that is in terms of leaving your men high and dry, because fundamentally you got what you needed, which is the French out of Portugal and, and well out of, of Spain by, by the end of 1813. And so therefore you just don't care anymore and you just leave them to their own devices. That is, well, I, I'm displeased with the Portuguese government for doing that. Except you've got to remember that they've been fighting this war since 1807. The country was ravaged by the French in 1810 and 1811, well, actually 1809 too. And they had to start focusing on the infrastructure, if nothing else. So they're going to have, you know, lots of starving people. Uh, and they had to start rebuilding it. Uh, and, you know, the Pyrenees Mountains are a long ways away from the Portuguese border. And so the threat wasn't there anymore. Uh, and there's, um, you know, Wellington got after him. Beresford actually had to go back to Lisbon in the... Uh, late 1813, the light of fire, but should he have had to? Yeah. You weigh that against the economic conditions and it's understandable that they may have said, eh, we have higher priorities now. But that's for a future book if someone's interested in writing one. It is. As I said, hmm. the Portuguese are not very well understood. No, indeed. Um, and the, these are the sorts of things that come out of podcasts like this, where you start to dig into a topic that's been utterly neglected and just go, Okay, there are a lot of books that need to be written about this topic. Um, I suppose we should go back to after action reports, shouldn't we? Which is which kind oh, well, of the, the focus, true. isn't it? Um, so the, you were just saying that these aren't just post major battles, are they? So they're not just your sort of your Salamancas and Victorias. You've got a lot of material to work with here. Talk me through what you've got. Okay, well, as you, I said earlier, the reports were required to be written anytime the unit was in combat. And we'll talk about if theoretically, if a company went out there and was in a, let's say some outpost and got attacked by the French, uh, there should have been a report written. Uh, for the reports we found, we have them for seven major battles. And pretty much, the different I define the major battles is one that they gave an army gold medal out. Um, and it was recognized as a major battle. That was a victory. Um, for example, Salamanca, Victoria, Sororin, uh, Nivelle, Nineveh, Orthez, and Toulouse were all covered in detail, especially Salamanca. There was a huge number of reports for Salamanca. There was also reports for three sieges including Burgos, San Sebastian, and Bayonne. And then 27 smaller actions, such as Villa Muriel, three from within the Pyrenees, and several from, from the campaign in southern France. So at times, if you read Omen's a History of the Peninsular War, he might devote a couple of paragraphs to one of these smaller actions. For example, after Victoria, Wellington sent, split his army, quite a bit and sent forces 
left and right to chase their uh, retreating French. And there's quite a few after action reports covering these, uh, what happened. Um, and give an example, there was uh, one of them, and this is the first time I found where a Portuguese officer commanded British units during the attack on the French. Uh, and he writes about what he did and, uh, and how they were deployed, et cetera. And it, he was like a brigade commander and he had uh, a couple of British regiments attached to his brigade. He had a, a cavalry uh, regiment attached and he lays it all out. And to me, this is the first time I've seen in combat where a Portuguese um, officer commanded uh, British troops, which you've never seen omens. Um, no, absolutely. I, I've just done another um, jaw drop there because had somebody asked me, I would have said that to the best of my knowledge, it never happened. Um, and, so, wow. Uh, later on, uh, General, uh, Lieutenant General, or actually it was Major General at the time, Carlos McCor uh, of the Portuguese Army was the senior brigade commander in the 7th um, Brigade or 7th Division. And in 1813, he commanded it for um, several months, including at the Battle of Nivelle. So not only was he, there's been cases where a brigade commander might command an uh, odd regiment or two, he had two British brigades in a um, Portuguese brigade under his command as a division commander, which, because um, he was a senior commander. We saw it uh, at a lower level in 1810 where the senior commanders in the light division in uh, December of 1810, uh, the, the light division uh, uh, command structure had been devastated by uh, basically 15, 16 months of nonstop campaigning and everyone was sick or dead. And so what do you do is you promote, you temporarily appoint the next senior person to be a brigade commander. And one case, it was a Portuguese officer. Now it was not in combat. So that's why I made a distinction, but he was the brigade commander uh, while they were in the lines of Toys Vendors, which um, unusual and I'm uh, well then, was adamant that we were not going to treat the different um, a brigade commander from a Portuguese brigade commander any different than a British brigade commander. Whoever was senior in rank was in charge. Uh, and we, uh, I'm going to cover a couple instances where he uh, manipulated the system to ensure that the person in command was competent. Uh, but that's uh, for later on. There are so many rabbit holes that we could shoot down. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm struggling to keep myself kind of focused on, on what we kind of agreed we'd discuss beforehand. Um, yeah. So these reports, they're authors. You mentioned that they're all in Portuguese, but we know that one of the ways that the, the Portuguese army was restructured was to bring in a number of British officers. So what's the distribution like in terms of the number of British individuals who are writing these reports versus the number of Portuguese. Talk me through the numbers here. Okay. Um, just the way it broke down, 75% uh, of the reports were by British officers, 25% by Portuguese officers. And this was because of the British officers held significant number of brigade, regimental, and even the division command uh, up until 1813. And I'll cover that in a little while. 
but it also depended on unit. Uh, at at one, one time, 80% of the brigade commanders were British. And however, you would think they, the reports would be in English. However, 230 of the reports out of uh, 272 or 85% were in Portuguese. 40 were in English. And what I found very surprising was two of the reports were in French. Uh, of the reports in English, 42% were from three officers. Uh, Generals Thomas Bradford and Manley Power each produced seven reports in English, while Colonel James uh, Douglas had three. And you look, looking at the vocabulary and phrasing, phrasing of the sentence, et cetera, it strongly suggests that almost all the reports in Portuguese that were signed by a British officer were dictated by the officer to a, a Portuguese aide who wrote it down. Uh, and the re reason why we say this, we're not 100% sure that how fluent any of these officers were, or some, let me rephrase that, how the majority of them were fluent, how fluent. We know they could speak it, they could give the orders in Portuguese, they could converse with their commanders, but there's a difference uh, between uh, talking and writing it down in a formal way. So we think uh, it was done by the aides. And supporting this also, was uh, examining the signatures of the, by the British officers who signed the reports. The writing is different than what the reports were written in. So we're pretty confident to say that the reports were formulated by the British officer and then written down, dictated to an aide or a staff officer, and then he signed it. And this, of course, is. We think the British officers did write uh, the private letters to uh, Beresford um, that we can't find. Um, okay. Uh, as I said, their English was pretty good, but the, the reports had a had had a formal tone to them. So they, uh, for that reason, most certainly was written. They also, for those that were written in English, they wanted. To, write things that were not necessarily complimentary about some of the individuals at their unit. Uh, and the, we never had a good feel on how many Portuguese officers spoke English. There was a few. So if you look at the ones that were written in English, they, they have a slightly different tone than the ones that were uh, written in Portuguese. Uh, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Now about the ones that were in French, who knows? They how are the they knew that most of the senior Portuguese officers, uh, such as the Adjutant General Mozimo, understood French. His English may not have been the best. So, uh, but we take what we find uh, and go with it. And those were not significantly different the ones in French than the one in um, Portuguese. And you know, in terms of the difference in nature, is there anything else? You know, we were talking about this before we came sort of on air, as it were. Just, just give our sense of a bit, our listeners, a bit more of a sense of, of some of the the peculiarities between the British and the Portuguese reports. Yeah, I started reading the reports, and a lot of times just ignored who the commander, who was writing it. Just I wanted to know what the information was about, and some. Uh, I started thinking, well, wait a minute, there's a difference in these reports. And so I asked uh, Moises, who um, translated all the reports, if there was a difference between the style of writing uh, between the British and the Portuguese, regardless whether the report was in English or in Portuguese. And he said, uh, yes, uh, he thought that the Portuguese officers in general gave less details on the operations and focused more on the individual accomplishments and on recommending those men who distinguished themselves or their own prodigies. You know, this is uh, almost, they were the patron of these junior officers and wanted to make sure that they got, you know, the patronage from them. Uh, however, the, the British, like uh, Pac, Madden, or Bradford, they focus more on the operation level. Uh, at one level of detail depended on whether Beresford was present. But the difference is probably a result of different military situations. The Portuguese officers were less experienced in combat, but most of them that come from the higher classes in society, i.e. they were, according to the Portuguese uh, culture, they were born to command. So they probably didn't, they did not see the need to use these reports to show the command capacity contrary to what the British did. If they mentioned and recommended some individuals for promotion, they probably guaranteed their faithfulness and fidelity in the army and outside of the army in future uh, uh, events. This kind of relationship between individuals of different classes was pivotal in the minds of those living in the Portuguese society at the time. However, the British officers in the Portuguese service were in a different situation. They were foreigners with no allegiance in the Portuguese army or society. They were, uh, I, I disagree with them a little bit on this, but they, uh, to me, they were loyal to the unit, they were loyal to the mission, but how loyal were they gonna be to count uh, so-and-so or Duke so-and-so who's having a power struggle with someone else in the government. I don't think it was there very much. Uh, therefore, the, uh, they, they, their reports tend to uh, look at what the unit did and how well they did. Uh, they wrote larger and more detailed reports explaining the orders and command decisions possibly to impress the British commanders like Beresford or Wellington. Because, you know, the war was going to event, end eventually, and, you know, they wanted to be recognized uh, for what they actually did. And 
if they basically blew off the report, well, then how is Beresford or uh, Wellington would know how well they did and influence their possible uh, advancement after the war ended? So that was very interesting. Uh, his, that was basically uh, Moise's response to my question on that particular subject. Uh, when we talk about the, who wrote the reports, uh, I mentioned, you know, theoretically, whoever was in combat was responsible for writing the reports of his unit. Uh, sometimes they slept it off because of the battalion commanders uh, weren't required to write them if the regiment regimental commander was writing one. Uh, there was a case where one of the reports was written by an ensign, basically a second lieutenant for anyone with modern uh, perspective. He was in the 13th Infantry Regiment. He was the senior surviving officer of a working party in the trenches at Burgos on 17 October, 1812. And if those are familiar with the uh, this Burgos siege, that was when the French made a major sally uh, among those killed was his company commander and Major Charles Edward Cox, who was a favorite of Wellington and was destined to go on great things. Yep. Uh, part of the problem. Uh, you know, you out there in front, you expose yourself, you take a chance of being killed. Cox was not a Portuguese or assigned to the Portuguese army. He was overall in charge of the um, the trench line and the building the trenches. At, he was the duty officer today. And so Ensign uh, Suarez Barboza of the 13th Infantry uh, Regiment was responsible for writing the report and went up to the chain of command, uh, theoretically all the way to the Beresford or the adjutant general. It made some very interesting reasons. You know, a lieutenant's perspective is very much different than a brigade commander's perspective. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. And, you know, there, unfortunately, we don't know this because what you've got are the sort of the polished reports, but you can't help wondering, you know, were there reports that were sent back because they just weren't good enough or weren't detailed enough or, you know, there were there were things that weren't acceptable in them. But that's uh, a whole other question. Uh, it could very well have been. Well, we know um, after Albuera, Wellington told um, Beresford to... Uh, Rewrite his uh, official dispatch exactly. to make it a victory rather than a defeat. Um, so, could very well have happened. Unfortunately, there's no way of saying it uh, or determining it. Uh, one of the things I'd like to emphasize about these reports and why I consider them so valuable is they were written within a day or two after the battle, sometimes the night after the battle. This is not someone 30 years later deep in his cups thinking, Oh, well, this is what happened, and uh, it must be true because I read it in Napier's history. And you find that they seem to mirror each other. These were what they saw at the time they saw it. Uh, and, you know, memoirs are nice, but they're, if they're written later, they can't always be trusted. Now, will these, are these perfect? Well, you know, if you read it, uh, you know exactly what the unit did, but and you know what officers did well, but they tend not to say what officers didn't do well. Uh, we, one of my favorite uh, sayings many years ago was, "It's damnation through faint praise." You know, 
you got five company commanders of these six companies uh, getting praised for doing well, and the sixth company commander is not mentioned at all. Either he didn't do well, or uh, the his company didn't wasn't in a position to do well. Uh, so, and of course, unless we have backup from other accounts, then it's hard to tell. Let's stay with that as a theme then and talk about sort of the contents of these reports. Give us some samples, some examples, some nice little kind of nuggets to encourage people to go and buy the book in order to get the whole thing, as it were. We'll talk about the overall quality of these reports. First, it depends on the writer. All writers are not created equal, even today. And some of them just said they had nothing to report. Others just forward the names of the officers who did well. However, many went into great detail, as I said before, and they contradict what Sir Charles Ullman writes in the, his epic uh, History of the Peninsula War. This is a good thing. And, and I'm going to mention one of my favorites. And it's about whether the 12th Cacadores at Salamanca captured the French Eagle. Oh, yes. Every account I have read states that they found it lying on the battlefield. Of course, every account I have read up until this report was written by British soldiers or officers. You know, we, now, how accurate that is, I don't know. However, Man, General Manly Power, who commanded the Portuguese Brigade in the 3rd Division, wrote the following report to the Adjutant General's Office. And I'll read it to you verbatim. The 12th Cacadores under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Cruikshank were detached from the brigade upon the above day that I, I believe his conduct as well as that of the battalion was extremely satisfactory to Major General Packenham. I've already reported for Marshal Beresford's information that it was Captain Vasconcelos of that battalion who took the Eagle, which the Major General mentions to have been taken by the 3rd Division in which Lieutenant Colonel Cruikshank presented the next day to General Packingham, be forwarded to the commander of the forces. Well, this is clear as day to me that they're saying that 12 Cacadores captured the Eagle and then stumbled across it on the battlefield. Um, and also interesting, this is another example. This clearly is a report that was sent to the adjutant general rather than Beresford, uh, though he mentions it. Uh, minor point about the difference from what the Omen reports. Uh, yeah, but for the 12th Cacadores, that was a major point. You know, saying we did capture it despite the British, what the British officers are saying. Uh, it was a source of pride. Yeah, I mean, the word is captured as opposed to, sorry, word is taken rather than found. Um, yeah. And there is a significant difference of inference to be taken from that, which you've just highlighted to us. Yeah, and I checked this against um, a couple of British reports, and they were saying that the day after the the Cacadores were parading that eagle throughout the army of France, and they were very proud of what they were doing. Well, you know, if you find something versus capturing something, um, these are two significantly different events. And um, so Owen got it wrong. I'm firmly believe it. Uh, additional to correcting the errors that have been handed up 
down as truth for the past 200 years. These reports often go into detail how, how a unit was deployed during a battle or a combat. You know, for example, after the Battle of the, the Niv in December 1813, General Thomas Bradford, the commander of the 10th Independent Portuguese Brigade, wrote that his subordinate regiments and even what the companies did. So you're not just seeing that the brigade commander was standing there looking at his line of troops defending. He went down and uh, actually wrote about what individual companies were doing. I'm not going to read the whole uh, report, but I, I'll uh, bring out something that he highlighted, highlighted in the 24th Regiment. I beg leave again to recommend Captain Soares, whose gallant contract I have twice before had occasion to notice his excellency, who has already been pleased to have him the perfect rank of captain. This officer with four companies of the 24th Regiment at charge of a post on the right of the position which the enemy attempted with very superior numbers to carry, but were driven back with considerable loss. Captain Soares took the colonel, three other officers, and 60 men prisoners. The two grenadier companies of the 24th Regiment were employed upon this occasion. They have always distinguished themselves. I beg also to mention particularly Captain Nemos of the regiment, who with his company drove the enemy down the main road on the 10th of December and on the 11th of December. I, I regret to say he was severely wounded. Sergeant Padua with a few men made an officer in eight prison, made an officer in eight soldiers prisoners. So here it is, he's saying, okay, this is what Captain Soares did on my right flank and how well he did it and the number of prisoners he took. And then he goes, oh, and by the way, Captain Lemos in another location actually took his company in counterattack down the road and took the uh, nine prisoners or uh, down the road and but he was wounded the next day and then he does something that I've never seen in one of Wellington's dispatches he praises an NCO for his performance and his duties and what good he had point. done so good point and you know it, as I mentioned earlier it's important these were written within a day or two after uh, they were uh, they happen, and furthermore, they complain contain information on how the unit was deployed and what taxes they used. I, I found another one. They were talking about how they stopped, and the chaplains for the regiment got out and prayed for the unit before they made the counterattack. Uh, you know, so you see information like that when you, and you combine it with also the the accounts that eyewitnesses have left from the British Army. You get a really superb look at um, what specific units uh, did, and what surprised me was how creative the Portuguese officers were when they were fighting. You know, almost, and I hate to bring up Richard Sharp, but some of this stuff looks like it was out of a Richard Sharp novel about what they were doing. But um, and there was quite a few other uh, reports like that. The other side of this is that you mentioned casualty returns. So talk us through, I mean, this might seem to sort of do what it says on the tin, but just kind of talk our listeners who might not be familiar, because not everybody's a, an expert in these documents, what a casualty return does, what it contains, and what kind of sprung up out of these that particularly struck you? Well, the requirement in addition to the report was 
the officer had to include a listing of the units killed, wounded, and missing in action. Okay, and now this makes sense because your next higher headquarters has to know what strength the unit is. And, you know, if you're down 50 or 60%, they're not going to send you off on a, uh, another mission. Uh, the officer casualties were actually listed by name, while the other ranks only on the numbers. And these were usually done within a day of the battle. They were often different than the numbers in Omen's history. I'm not sure where Omen's got some of the uh, figures from. I think they've been possibly from Wellington's uh, dispatches or reports, but these were uh, different. They're not really significant, but their numbers were different. Um, I'll give an example. Uh, I did, thanks to Moises, was able to come up with a casualty figures for the River Coa for the uh, the two Cacadores battalions. And they were two separate sets because they listed a fairly large number of soldiers who were missing in the first set. In the second set, uh, there was a change in the number of missing because a lot of soldiers returned to the colors made it across the river. and the number of uh, wounded was smaller than we originally reported, but the number of dead was higher. So, you know, the guy was wounded, they hadn't died yet. Uh, and so in the next report showed what uh, the difference was. Well, some of these reports are, were similar to these casualty reports. And Omen, yeah, Omen's good. He got probably 90%, 95% correct, but there were differences that uh, for the purists, they would want to make sure they, uh, uh, got the correct figures. I mean, this is a point, isn't it? The Omen's work is now literally a century old. I think the first volumes were coming out in something like 1907, 1908, and the last ones come out in something like 1930. It's yes, it's the daddy, and it's it stood the test of time remarkably well, um, particularly for a book that is that old. But it's not unimpeachable you know there are errors in it and it's work like this that gives us the new perspectives that just shows that there's plenty more out there that you know needs to be looked at in more depth now this book it has a lot of info about the portuguese that can't be found anywhere else talk us through the implications of that um, what you've got what kind of frustrated you about what you haven't got at this stage and also kind of where you hope you know, people will kind of use this as a leapfrog to further research. Okay, um, let's start with the initial draft manuscript. I sent the email to Rupert Harding um, and told them, by the way, Rupert uh, retired this year, early this year, so he's been replaced uh, by someone I'm sure will do a fine, good job as he did, but it might be hard shoes to fill. Anyway, I said, Okay, just give you a heads up. My draft manuscript is 203,000 words at this point. <laughs> and I, I immediately got a word back from him. He said, no, it's too much. You got to cut it down to 150,000 words, which I said, okay. Um, and understandable just because of the financial side of publishing. And so we had a choice. We had to sit there. What do we cut? And bottom line was we cut nothing from the reports. That was it. nothing else these reports will go in, but they also wanted a history of background history, not only the Portuguese army and, but also the battles because 
unless you're a, a serious scholar of uh, the Peninsula War, a lot of these reports won't make sense unless you read them in a vacuum, or if you read them in a vacuum. So we needed first that felt the reader needed to understand the history of the Portuguese army prior to 1812, when the report started. Most of, you, uh, most of our listeners know that French invaded Portugal in 1807 and disbanded the army after conquering the country. They occupied the country until August 1808 when the British arrived and defeated them at the battles of Roca and Vimiero. And by the end of 1808, Portugal had been liberated and the Portuguese government was formed. But now they had no army. So they had to rebuild the army. Units were stood up by recalling the colors of former officers, non-commissioned officers and other ranks. And one of the most important things that they did was ask the British government government for a suitable officer to command their army. Under protest, General William Beresford, who spoke Portuguese and had worked with the Portuguese before, was chosen. He didn't want to go. He initially said no. And they convinced him that uh, either you go or you're not going to be employed by the army. Um, and he was appointed Marshal and Commander-in-Chief of the Portuguese Army in March of 1809. So he went from being a major general to a marshal. I mean, theoretically a 40 or 50,000 man army because he was a very good organizer. He was a competent general and he spoke Portuguese. Uh, in many ways, being in the right place at the right time. When he got there the Portugal, he realized he couldn't do this by himself. So he brought with, with uh, some British officers to help. He kept old regiments, but changed the organization and introduced British drill. And the way he did this was he had a couple of aides uh, who were members of British Portuguese families who lived in El Porto, big into the port uh, uh, wine business. And they were basically brought into the army. And the first thing they did was translate the British drill manuals into Portuguese. Uh, uh, once the, the manuals were sent down to the units, uh, units were not considered fit uh, for active service until they were proved to have mastered the new drill. Uh, so this definitively says that the uh, Portuguese fought in a two-rank system, two-line, not the three-line that most continental armies did. Morris has also spent many hours uh, going through the archives to come up with a definitive table of organization for all the units. And in the book, we show the organization of the infantry companies, battalions, regiments, as well as the Kakadoys, cavalry, artillery, technical services, also such thing as the militia and the ordincia. Uh, and very difficult to find any information. And this is all based um, on what he found in the archives. And we also showed, not just for 1808, but we showed how the units changed over the years. So you'll have a good picture of what they started with in, let's say, 1800, got disbanded in 1807, what they stood up in 1808, and then how it was changed over the years up through 1814. One of the problems for research in the, the Portuguese army is to determine what was the organization of the brigades uh, and who commanded what unit when. 
In the first chapter, we covered the years up to 1812. In addition to that, we provide information on where the units were recruited from, drew its conscripts from, and the administration of the army. We also discussed what happened after 1814 the Civil War. So you have a very good idea of what the army looked like going into uh, 1812 and the campaigns from the army. And then we go into detail after uh, 1814, what happened to the army, including uh, for those who may not know it, but there was a couple of civil wars in the 1820s in Portugal. So uh, you get a very good idea what the army looked like prior to 1812. I mean, there are so many rabbit hole questions that I want to ask about the nature of the Portuguese army, the success of that drill regime, you know, how long it takes to train them. But these are all questions. This is a whole interview in, in and of itself. So I guess we're going to have to very reluctantly move on. It's worth saying that the the bulk of the reports, I'm guessing, are, are 1812 to 14. So therefore, is it fair to say that the, the primary focus of the book is 1812 to 14? Uh, it is. The primary focus of the book is 1812 to 1814. And actually, the book covers quite a bit on the organization from 1812 on. Uh, before I get that, though, I really need to explain how the reports are organized because uh, we try to use a logical way of organizing them. And you'll see what I'm, where I'm going with this in a minute. Uh, we broke down the reports into three sections, uh, one for 1812, one for 1813, one for 1814. When, within each section though, there was chapters for each major battle or action. The, the first chapter of each section gives an overview of what was happening, the campaigns, battles, and sieges, just to set the stage of what's going on. But it, we follow that by listing them how the Portuguese army was organized that year. Who commanded what brigade? Who commanded what regiment? Where were they located? What division were they attached to or assigned to? Um, and they, they change occasionally. Um, we, for each, uh, each unit, as well as artillery company, we show who commanded the unit on the 1st of January and when necessary, who also commanded later on in the year. So this uh, will help the leader keep track of who is doing what and why. Because in 1812 and most of 1813, for example, a brigade was known by the brigade commander's name. So uh, Soares commanded the brigade in the Portuguese division and uh, let's say in the beginning of 1813, suddenly in 1813, they renumbered the brigades. That makes sense because the brigade should, it shouldn't make a difference on who the brigade commander is when you're trying to figure out what they did. Uh, and so then they were numbered and there were 10 infantry brigades. And uh, interesting, they, uh, they didn't do it for cavalry though. And so, we explain that for each. It's, so at the beginning of each section, we give an overview of the, the battles and the campaigns and then what the army looked like for that year. And so you'll, the army what fought in the campaign of 1812 was different than the army that fought in 1814. Different commanders, uh, 
generally the organization was changed, but the commanders changed. Additionally, you get to the each chapter I said is, uh, deals with a particular fight or, or a battle. And so we start with an overview of what units did what, what each unit or what the battle was about, where the units were uh, located, et cetera, the results, the numbers involved, total casualties, et cetera. Uh, again, we wanted the reader, reader to be able to have some context uh, about what the battle was going on. And then the question is, how do we do this in a logical manner? And so we, and Moises had a good idea, was why don't we just start on one flank and just work our way to the other flank of the battle? Uh, so it's not an even uh, a great picture of what the, how the battle flowed, but you'll be able to say, see, okay, this is what the third brigade did in the brigade during it. And we described with some detail um, uh, what they did. And then just to put those reports in context, we also occasionally would find um, firsthand accounts by people who saw what they did or were part of it. Uh, again, it was all British officers, but uh, and would give relevant quotes. Then once we did it for that brigade, we moved on to the next brigade and all the way around to the other side of the battlefield. Uh, some of the battlefields were immense, like uh, Salamanca and Victoria, or in the Pyrenees, where you had multiple battles going on uh, at the same time. Uh, so uh, in the end, you'll be able to, if you're interested in, let's say, the Pyrenees, you'll be able to go to one chapter in the book and find all that reports that dealt with the Pyrenees in that chapter, and also a summary of what each unit did. Uh, when, when I talked about having to cut 50,000 words out of, uh, out of the book, that's where these uh, uh, words came from. Uh, the, so we went from a very formal writing where everyone had their rank and uh, full name, but once we mentioned, for example, uh, General Carlos uh, LaCour or Lieutenant General Carlos LaCour, if someone became LaCour, uh, as long as it was within the same. And because the most important thing was get the reports out there, published. Absolutely. I like that kind of structure, though, to focus sort of one flank and then another and sort of move logically through the battlefield, because it's quite good in terms of if you want to really understand, you know, what was happening on the right flank at Vittoria, let's say, then it's it's much easier when you're doing it that way to to focus on it in that kind of fashion. Um, and from a research perspective, actually, I really like that because if I really want, particularly for people like me who want to then go out and visit a battlefield, you can then kind of you can take the book with you even and go, okay, so this is what was happening on this section of ground. And so I think that makes a huge amount of sense. I, I really like it. Um, we are sadly running out of time uh, for this one. Um, we're well over an hour already. Um, I gather that there is information about biographies of the, the officers within the appendix. I'm hoping that you're gonna to agree to come back again and we'll discuss you know, the British officers in the Portuguese service, who they were, what they did, uh, their reputations, how they received all of that kind of thing. It would be my pleasure to do that. Uh... Two points I'd like to bring up. Uh, the first is we do have a complete chapter that's dealing with the, the British officer served in, in the 
with the Portuguese army, and hopefully we'll be able to discuss it later. And then we ended with two appendices of short biographies of the report writers. Uh, I always wanted to know what happened to these guys uh, who wrote the reports or whatever I'm reading uh, an account by someone. And so again, these were quite lengthy. There's another place we had to cut. And so our goal is to put them on the Napoleon series, the full reports uh, or biographies onto the uh, Napoleon series within the next couple of months. But there's one appendix that covers all the Portuguese writers and the ones British. Fantastic. So. I mean, there's another incentive to go and buy this book. I want to just sort of end by getting your assessment of the Portuguese army as, as a whole. There, there's particularly, if you read British accounts, the jury seems to be out, doesn't it? And I think often this is based perhaps on individual experiences. You know, some will say that Portuguese fight like tigers. Other describe them as sort of lazy scoundrels who've never been known to perform a gallant act. And the truth certainly isn't going to be the latter of those assessments. Um, see the fact that they took an eagle. Um, but it's very interesting that you get these kind of polarised positions. My understanding is that actually the Portuguese never really broke in situations where the British wouldn't have also broken. And so any criticism of the Portuguese is often unduly harsh. But you're the guy who's read these reports. So you've got a perspective on all of this that we haven't had for 200 years. So what's your take on the Portuguese army, how well it serves, you know, its peaks and troughs in terms of its service and also its leadership, you know, how well led is this force? Um, I think you asked some very good questions. Uh, and it depends on the year. I would say 1813 was the peak. That was as good as the Portuguese army ever was going to be. And it may not be well known that 40% of the arm, Wellington's army consists of the Portuguese troops. Uh, I'm not sure if Wellington didn't have confidence in these troops, he would not have put them out there. And he, he was the one who brought up the term the fighting cocks. That's what he called them at Osako. Uh, and so the more they fought, they, the better they got. Uh, I would say by 1813, the special units were at least as good as some of the British units and equal to most of the French army that fought. Leadership had improved at all levels and that the number of British brigade and regimental commanders had dropped significantly by 1814. At one point, 16 of the 24 regimental commanders were British. By Toulouse in April 1814, that number was down to only 12. And as I mentioned before, possibly the best indicator of what Wellington thought about the Portuguese officers was in October 1813, when Carlos Lecor, the commander of the 6th Portuguese Brigade, was given command of the 7th Division. Uh, and he commanded it for several months and led it at the Battle of Novell. If Wellington did not believe in his ability, he would not have given him the command. He would have found a way to appoint someone else. So the, the units got better, the leaders got better, and the need for the number of British officers dropped. Uh, so, but you know, there was other issues in 1814. Absolutely. Um, one question that's always bugged me: there's no Portuguese division. 
And I've never quite understood that. I've always kind well, of wondered, is it kind of Wellington's hesitancy and whether he just doesn't quite want to trust it in the... I mean, there's a Spanish division, isn't there, that has to just be completely sent home because they can't be trusted to behave themselves when they cross over into France. Why? What's your take on that? Why do you think he doesn't agree to it? Well, I hate to embarrass you. There was a Portuguese division. What? Yes, there was a Portuguese division. It would stood up in 1810. And he was, what you, reason why you don't read or hear too much about him, because they were down with Hill around Badajoz. And they, um, they actually had uh, several British commanders until probably 1813 when they, um, uh, they found the Portuguese commander um, to uh, command. Um, the brigades, it was pure, unlike the rest of the divisions in the army, which were generally, except for the first division, which was all British or KGL, every division had a, a Portuguese brigade assigned to it. Uh, the Portuguese division was 100% Portuguese. Uh, they had two brigades. Uh, of Each brigade had two uh, regiments, and one of the brigades had a Kakadori's battalion. So, uh, and they operated uh, under Hill most of the time, but 1813, they were integrated into the army and they were on, at Victoria, they were on the right flank. And they were the ones who assaulted the right flank initially. And then they were involved quite heavily in the Pyrenees. So, uh, as I said, this uh, might be a nice way to close it is the fact that the Portuguese are not well known, and the contributions are often under, uh, under misunderstood or not recognized. Uh, so, but in your defense, there were the Portuguese divisions up until 1813 had uh, British commanders, but the brigade commanders both were um, one was Portuguese, one was uh, British, and by into the war with uh, Portuguese communities. So. Never have I had more egg on my face. Um, that is a brilliant one to end on. Um, we are absolutely leaving that in the final edit because I love those moments when I just look like an absolute moron because, hey, every day is a learning day. Um, I am appalled with myself that I've never picked up on that. I could have sworn there was this whole thing that Wellington resisted the formation of a Portuguese... Uh, division and now I'm thinking that I've gone completely mad and I'm wondering what the hell I was reading that made me think that um, so I've got some homework to go away and do um, Bob this has been utterly brilliant please do come back and talk about the British officers in the Portuguese service because I really want to kind of dig into their stories you know what did they do we, we've kind of had that teaser of you know the civil war into the 1820s I'm really keen to explore what kind of happens to them there in the words of Wellington's fighting Cox, is out already. It's from Pen and Sword. People, I've had the rant already. Go to Pen and Sword to buy it, please, as opposed to Amazon. Jeff Bezos does not need your money right now. Um, he says, having ordered many things from Amazon, but not books, because I have my principles. Um, Bob, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with anybody who might also be keen. A big thank you as ever to those of you who are supporting this content on Patreon 
or leaving one-off tips via Ko-fi. For more details on the perks and how you can contribute, please follow the links in the description. A big shout out as ever to my patrons for their generosity, my Emperor level patrons Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Marshall level patrons Marcus Cribb and Todd Campbell, my Commander patrons Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen and Michael Guest, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons starting with my mentioned in dispatches plus patron Noah Fink, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell Grieve, Andy Meakin, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colleen Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cochlan, and Stephen Coulson. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.